Just in case you're wondering, the kids are going down because they're going to go to another room. They have their own Sunday school worship. So good morning. My name is Norbert. Welcome to Point of Grace Church. We are a small church with a big heart, just in case you know. And my prayer this morning is that you will feel that experience today here with us. We are still on the series. It's called End of the World Series, Should I Be Afraid? We're, we're doing the book of Revelation, just in case. So if you have a Bible of, or somewhere lying down in your house, and you come to flip on the last book of the Bible, it's called Revelation, it's talking about the end of the world. Sometimes it's scary, but if you read about it very carefully, it's not really that scary. But again, the whole topic has to do with the end of the world. And the main question is, should I be afraid of it? The big fat answer is no. Last week we talked about, there's a science to, to humor. When somebody tells a joke, the only way you can get a joke is if you follow three rules. Number one, don't take it too seriously. Number two, do not get bogged down with details. And number three, do not take it literally. Are we cool with that? Let me do that again. If somebody tells you a joke, the only way you can get it is if you are not bogged down with details, you don't take it literally, and you don't take it too seriously. Let's try that. A couple of weeks ago, my son, after dinner, asked me around the table. He said, Papa, how do you put an elephant in the fridge? Immediately, I think, mm, that's a joke. I'm not going to take it seriously. I'm not... I'm not going to take it too literally, and I'm not going to be bogged down with details. So I said, you open the fridge, put the elephant, and then close the door. And he smiled. He knew I got the joke. So he said, Papa, how do you put a giraffe in the fridge? Hmm, same rules. Open the door, take the, uh, the elephant out, put the, the giraffe, close the door. He knew it's a joke. I knew it's a joke. So he said, the lion, the king of the jungle, called for a meeting for all the animal kingdom, and all animals showed up except one. Who is it? So I said, it's the giraffe. It's stuck in the elephant. It's making sense. Are you getting the drift? <laughs> That's good. Say, for example, you're in the jungle, and you're starving to death, and you see a fruit tree across the river. And before you even swam, you saw a sign. It says, beware of crocodiles, do not swim. But because you're so hungry, you swam anyway. You reach across the river, and nothing happened to you. How did it happen? Because the crocodiles are in the meeting. You're getting the joke. <laughs> See, when you read the book of Revelation, it's the same. You get to the main point. You ask... What is the point of this? You don't get bogged down with details. You don't take it literally. You take it symbolically and ask the question, what's the point? Today, it's Revelation chapter 4. John will be having a vision of the heavenly throne. And his vision was about seeing the one sitting on the throne together with some of the elders and heavenly creatures. And it will not be literal. It will be symbolic. Put it like this. We're in a theater, and John is sitting with you right now, looking at the big screen ever, and, and for once, the heavenly scene was open to him. That's a vision. 
He was not transported to heaven. A vision is like the heavenly scene was unfolded in front of him. So he had a vision. That's the idea of Revelation chapter 4. But the idea is that at this point, 1890, the temple was already destroyed. Worship is no longer inside the temple because there's no more temple. And John was stuck in an island off the coast of Turkey. It's called Patmos. And suddenly, on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit. You will find that in, in Revelation chapter 1. This is a long series of visions that he got, but it started on the Lord's day. And the first century church would understand that the Lord's day means Sunday. So on Sunday, John had a vision, and he said, I saw the Lord. He was in the spirit. Many, many people would come to church and worship and sing and raise their hands, but they're not in the spirit. How do I know that? Because you may be looking at me right now, you may be singing, but it doesn't necessarily mean you are in the spirit. You may be talking to me, you're looking at me, but you may be thinking, what's for lunch? Uh, I want to check my Facebook. Hang on, hang on. In the spirit means he was consciously one in spirit and he was looking at the vision, the vision that God gave him. That's John at this very point. And when you look at the book of Revelation, you will find a lot of things like tribulation and, and 666 and the mark on the forehead and the dragons and the beast and the scrolls and the seals. You cannot take this literally. John, when he was having the vision, it's like a preview in a movie and he was looking at, at what heaven looks like, the throne of God, what, what looks like there. Now before this, there's a very interesting story about the heavenly vision, not with John, but the story of Israel. You know the story of Israel, right? Ten Commandments, the movie, Charles Heston. So they came from Egypt, let my people go, the big guy. And then they crossed the Red Sea, they came to the wilderness, and after three months, they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God said, Moses, prepare the people because I want to meet them. And so on the third day, according to Exodus chapter 19, God came down from the mountain. There was darkness and clouds and fire and thunder. And God came down from heaven on top of the mountain, the people at the foot of the mountain, and Moses going up to the mountain. Let me read that for you. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain were, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord, it's capital L-O-R-D, it means Yahweh, because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord, Yahweh, came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is like a description of a one looking from the outside, looking at the mountain from a distance, looking at God coming down from heaven on top of the mountain, the people at the foot of the mountain, and Moses going up. Very interesting. And there were thunders and lightnings and smoke and trumpet blasts. 
And you're probably asking, what's next? What happened next? Here's what happened next. Exodus 24, verses 9 and 10. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. This is amazing ever. This is amazing. They saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. What I have in mind, if you picture this in mind, is that they saw God, but he was standing on a very clear pavement or platform. This is very interesting. So you have the images of thunder, lightning, fire, smoke, and God, and there's a pavement. And the elders and Moses went up to the mountain. Are you still with me? Combine these two together, chapter 19 and chapter 24, you have Revelation chapter 4. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 4. It says, after this, because he said a lot of things in chapters 2 and 3, he said, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now he's speaking through, it's a preview of what heaven looks like. Behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice is not St. Peter. I'm sorry, no. St. Peter with the rooster, no. It says, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. It's like God telling Moses, come up here. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. We know this. This is Yahweh seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. He's mentioning stones, precious stones. And then he said, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. In the first uh, book that we read in Exodus, there were 70 elders together with Moses. In verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, just like in the time of Moses. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, at his were, sea of glass like crystal, like what Moses saw, a pavement clear. Now, John's giving a sneak peek of what heaven looks like, what the heavenly throne of God looks like. Now, bear in mind that at this point, again, the temple was already destroyed. Worship is not done in Jerusalem. John is in Patmos. And you would think, where should they worship God? The question is, where is God? So, spirit, and he was caught up in a vision and he saw a peak of what heaven looks like. This is amazing. Now, bear also in mind that he was seeing a vision. While he was seeing the vision in chapters 2 and 3, he said that there are seven churches representing the whole Christendom in the whole Roman Empire. And while he was looking at the vision happening simultaneously, are the churches getting beaten, arrested, persecuted, and killed without mercy? It's happening simultaneously. So what John is doing is that he is bringing two realities together, what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven together. See, the problem is only the church can only see what's happening around them. But what John is looking at is what's happening in heaven. So the question is, what's really happening? There are two realities here. What's happening? 
Remember at this point, the churches were suffering from tribulation, and they were asking three questions. Why are we suffering? And why am I suffering and not this guy? And how long will I suffer? Maybe you're asking the same things. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering and not this guy? How long will I be suffering? So the churches in time of John were asking those questions. So what I'd like you to do is to put yourselves in the shoes of the first century churches. Here's the scenario. Caesar, Emperor Caesar, rules the entire Roman Empire. The Roman Empire stretches from Spain, Portugal to the west, going up to Great Britain or UK, and then will stretch to the east. You have Romania, you have Ukraine, parts of Austria, Hungary, Georgia, and down to Iraq, Syria, Israel, down to the south in Egypt, and the tip of the northern Africa all the way to Morocco. That's the whole Roman Empire. It's huge. That's the beginning of the Western civilization. So when we talk about Caesar, it's like he rules the world at this point. And not only that, Caesar demands to be called with the title Dominus et Deus. What does it mean? Dominus et Deus means the Lord and God. So when the people address Caesar, they would address Caesar as, Hail Caesar! Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. Very interesting. In the middle of the Senate Hall is the throne of Caesar. It's a golden chair and surrounded by senators sitting, advising him what to do about the empire. What John saw in Revelation chapter 4 resembles the Roman Senate Hall. There was one sitting on the throne. There were 24 elders advising him and there were four living creatures. This is amazing, to say the least. Now, there are two realities. Again, Roman Empire presided by Caesar with the title Dominus et Deus and the heavenly throne, on the other hand, presided by the one who is called in verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, Dominus et Deus, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. What's the difference between Caesar and Yahweh? Caesar may have brought the Roman Empire to the zenith of its power, honor, and glory, but only Yahweh has created all things, and therefore he is worthy to be called that, of all glory, honor, and power. I cannot help but think at this point of the, the book by J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Who has seen that movie? by the way. Okay, you've seen that movie. You can relate to me. Now, in this movie, it's a three-part three series. On the third part, there was Gandalf. There was a scene about Gandalf the White. He was hurrying to go to Gondor. He opened the door. He went straight to the empty hall, and he greeted the one sitting on the throne. He said, Hail Denethor, son of Ecthelion, lord and steward of Gondor. It's still ringing in my mind. Lord and steward of Gondor. He's a steward, which means he's not king. The king died, but the son of the king decided to stay in exile. He doesn't want to take the throne. So Denethor stayed in the throne. He was a steward, but he's not king. But then Denethor replied to Gandalf. He said, words have reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arthorn. And I tell you now, I will not bow down to this ranger from the north, Last of a rugged house, long bereft of lordship. Sounds like Shakespeare to me. Now, Gandalf was surprised. 
because he doesn't want to give up the throne. So he said, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king. Steward, you remember that. And suddenly, Denethor rose up with explosion. He said, the whole rule of Gondor is mine and no others. I mean, he's a steward, but he's claiming to be the king. And he's echoing the famous line of Smeagol. You remember Smeagol? The creator, he said, this ring is mine, my precious, mine alone. Because he doesn't want to give up the power, just like Denethor, he doesn't want to give up the power. And I can hear Caesar saying the same thing. The rule of the Roman Empire is mine and mine alone. But who really rules the world? Who rules the whole universe? It's a very interesting story. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, after he was baptized, now, this is a lot of stories, guys. After he was baptized, he was brought to the wilderness to fast 40 days and 40 nights. Who tried intermittent fasting? It's tough. Who tried five-day fasting? Oh, wow. You're the only one. It's tough. I mean, Jesus had to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, he was so hungry that the devil started to tempt him. The second temptation was he brought to the pinnacle of the mountain, at the peak of the mountain, and he was showed all the kingdoms of the world. And here's Satan, together with Jesus, showing, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but bow down and worship me. It's like him saying, I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you acknowledge me as your dominus et deus, Lord and God. Worship me. This is echoing what... Caesar, Smeagol, and Denethor is saying, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but bow down and worship me. Jesus knew better that this Satan is not the ruler of the world. He, he's not king of the world. He doesn't own the world. He did not create the world. Now, contrary to the, the popular understanding of the deist in the Enlightenment period, is that when God created the world, he created the world like a watch, automatic watch. He won the watch, and then he left somewhere far away in the galaxy, somewhere there like Star Trek. And then every 1,000 years, he would come back here and wind the watch. God never left Earth. So Satan is not the ruler of this world. You can find and read all the versions of of the Bible, and you will not find any single idea that Satan is the king of the world. Nothing. Nada. Mm -mm. Nothing. So the idea is that Jesus knew he's not the king of the world. He's pretending to be the king of the world. And he's saying, I can give you the kingdoms of the world, but you have to acknowledge me. I am Dominus et Deus. But Jesus knew better. He quoted the scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. He said, it is Yahweh, your God, you shall worship, and him only you shall serve. The end of the story. Now fast forward to the arrest of Jesus Christ. Jesus was in front of Pontius Pilate. Somebody asked me before, does uh, Pilate know how to fly a plane? Answer is no, he's not Pontius the pilot. No, it's different. He's Pontius the pilot, full name. So Jesus was in front of Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the representative of Rome. He's the prefect of Judea. That means he's the little king in Judea, representative of Caesar. Which means he will decide if Jesus is guilty, he will be crucified, or Jesus is innocent, he will be freed. So he stepped out to talk to the people and said, what am I going to do to your savior? 
And the people said, crucify him because he broke our law and our losses. He is, is saying he is divine. He's putting himself equal with God. He calls himself son of God. So hearing that, Pilate came back because, you know, if Jesus is demigod or a god, then he's in trouble because he's human. So he came back and asked Jesus, where are you from? He wants to know. To which Jesus did not reply. Very interestingly, he got very impatient. So in John chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus said he gave him no answer. In verse 10, it says, So Pilate said to him, you know, Italians, they do this. Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or to crucify you? You know, when Italians start doing that, it means they mean business. So Pilate started doing this. I'm just trying to imagine this. Will you not speak to me? I have the power to release you. I have the authority to release you. I own the kingdom. I am the little Caesar in Judea. That's what he's trying to say. But it's how Jesus replied. Verse 11 said, You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. What Jesus is saying here is that Pilate may be the prefect of Judea. He may be the rightful representative of Rome, but he has no real authority at all. No real authority at all. Because real authority comes from above. It is decided above, not below. It's not decided in Roman hall. It's not decided in the Sanhedrin. It's not decided in the judgment seat of Pilate. It's decided above, which means evil things, bad things, accidents happen. Things happen because God allows it to happen. Are you with me? There's no bad juju. You're not unlucky. Things happen because God allows them to happen. Once again, we are pulled into this dilemma. Our physical eyes are limited to what we can only see. And if we look around, we're only seeing only the rich and powerful can have an insider info on the stock trading, get richer, and get away with it. You know what I'm talking about. What, what our eyes are looking at that only the rich and the powerful can do drugs, accept bribes, and walk in the White House like he's a rock star. And you get frustrated. I mean, you say, this is so unfair. Here I am, I'm trying to live a righteous life, and God knows it, God sees me, and yet here I am, I'm still living from paycheck to paycheck. I'm still struggling with arthritis. I'm still single. NBSB. No boyfriend since birth. You know that. So here's an alternative. With all that ha that's happening around us, while everything that's randomly happening around us, there's something going on in heaven's throne. And the one sitting is surrounded by 24 elders and four angelic beings. Now forget for a second how they look and what their names are and why there are 24 elders in there. But focus on what they say. That's a more important thing. Again, do not get bogged down with details. Ask what's the point. Here's the point, chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say. Now, it's, it's very hard to imagine that kind of creature. But again, this, this is a metaphor for something. But what they say is more important than how they look. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What does it mean? 
A prophet 700 years before John lived, he saw the same thing, he had, he had the same vision, he saw the same creatures, and he heard the same statements. Isaiah lived 700 years before John, and this is what he said in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. He said, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord just like how John saw the Lord, sitting upon the throne just like how John saw a one sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, because at that time there was a temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These creatures had six wings, two covered the face, two covered the feet, and two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is who is, who was, and is to come. It's the same thing. It's the glory of God that he saw, just like what John saw. But who is this King Uzziah? He said in chapter 6, verse 1, In the year King Uzziah died, then he saw the Lord. See, John was in Patmos. He was in exile because apparently Caesar didn't like him. And the same thing, he saw the Lord. During the time that there was turmoil and persecution and tribulation, John saw the Lord. During the time that this King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. Who is this King Uzziah? Uzziah, according to history, reigned for 52 long years. He's a good king. And he, was, and he was a very smart king. And in his lifetime, there was a success in the kingdom. The kingdom triumphed and flourished. And one day, he thought to himself that his power goes beyond more than his palace. So one day, he decided to enter the temple and offer an incense. Now, we know from history that only the priests are allowed to enter the temple. Kings are not allowed to enter the temple. But he was there, strolling inside the temple, bearing an incense. And the priests saw it and stopped him. And the Lord stopped him as well. Leprosy broke out from his forehead and he came running to the door. And then the story said he died. He did not die right after. He still lived, but he was condemned. He was made unclean and untouchable. And the year that he died, God appeared to Isaiah as if saying, look who's in charge. Isaiah is not in charge. I am in charge. I am on the throne. See, the churches in the time of John are under persecution and, and asking the same question. Who is really in charge? Is it Caesar or God? Who is really the dominus et deo, Caesar or God? Who is worthy to receive honor, glory, and power? Is it Caesar or God? Who has the power to take life or to make their lives miserable and to make sure that they get justice? Is it Caesar or God? Maybe you're asking the same question right now. Who's in charge of this world? Who decides who lives and who dies during the pandemic? Is it God or somebody else? Who decides who have a more comfortable life and who stays poor? Is it someone else or God? Who decides what's happened here? In our country, is it the president or God? John is, is giving us an answer to this dilemma. Who rules freely on the throne? So let's just assume for a second that God rules and therefore is the final say to everything. And you may probably be asking, why does it feel like 
Even though I know that God is in charge, why does it feel like as if God is not doing much? Why is it that I'm praying and my prayer is even getting longer every day and yet there's no answer to my prayers? Let me give you one small detail. This is an exception to the rule. Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. This is what it says. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. What? Again, this is the throne of God. The 24 elders have harps for singing, and they are also with them having bowls full of incense. Incense is for the fragrance. And the fragrance is representing the prayers of the saints. That's you and me. This is the churches during the time of John. What that means is that their prayers, whatever they're praying, are reaching God. It's in the heavenly throne like an incense, a fragrance. It reaches the one who's sitting on the throne. And you may be probably wondering, what kind of prayer reaches God? What kind of prayer reaches the heavenly throne of God? Now, when the Bible talks about prayer, it talks about your desperate cries for help. Our agony in daily struggles of life. When you sigh, that's called prayer as well. You're whining and you're why, 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 Lord, why, why. Can also be prayers. And they all reach to God. So here the issue is not really do my prayers reach God? The issue here is that will you remain faithful to God? Will you trust God still when He decides there will be no help during the time of tribulation? There will be no healing for the moment. There will be no boyfriend for the next five years. Will you still trust in God? You see, because at the end of the day, our faithfulness should not be based, sorry, at the end of the day, our faithfulness should be based on the unchanging character of God, not on our present circumstances. And the, and the unchanging character of God, according to the living creatures, to be separate from the ordinary. My daughter Indai, we fondly call her Indai, her name is Thea. My daughter understands this concept, what holiness is. She has pajamas for sleeping. She has some tutu for the house for every day. But she reserves the colorful tutu with laces and pink. You know, you can see her later. She reserves that for Sunday and for going out. She understands that these tutus are special. When you say God is holy, you're saying there's only one God, He's unique God, and He's the only one who deserves to be praised with glory, power, and honor. That's holiness. There are two things that I won't share to anyone. Uh, one is my toothbrush, but it depends on the situation. If it's a matter of life and death, maybe. The second would be my wife. I will never share my wife with anyone. The relationship that we have is sacred, it's holy, it's for us alone. But this understanding of holiness pales in comparison if we compare it to the holiness of God. What does it mean to say that God is holy? For, for us to say that God is holy means to say that God is uniquely God. There's no other God but Him. And He's full of His glory. In fact, Isaiah articulated this for us in Isaiah 42 verse 8. He said, Jesus, sorry, God is saying, I am the Lord. This is Yahweh. I am Yahweh. This is my name. 
My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will never share his glory. There will never be a point in time where somebody will be elevated to the position of being God. No, no, no. God cannot share his glory. Because God is alone, unique. That position is exclusive to him, being God. Glory. His glory, his honor, and power are all unchanging. Now think about diamonds for a moment. Any angle you look at the diamond, it's amazing, it's mesmerizing, it's beautiful. John Keats wrote in a poem, he said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. He's not talking about diamonds, but he understood aesthetics, he understood beauty. Now, I visited New York a couple of years ago, and I went to the Museum of Modern Art. If, if you haven't been there, check it out when you go to New York. It's just eight-hour drive from here, uh, maybe a one-and-a-half-hour flight from here. When I went there, I saw the Starry Night. You know Vincent? Starry Night, Starry, Starry Night, Vincent. You know Van Gogh? It was beautiful. It's so amazing. I probably was staring at the Van Gogh for like maybe 30 minutes, although there's so many people around it's so mesmerizing, to say the least. According to uh, the statistics, it's, it costs now about $1 billion. So if you have money, you know, $1 billion, you can buy and invest. $1 billion for that thing of beauty. But they also said, according to historians, that there are 21 versions of Starry Starry Night. Amazing. If you happen to go to the Philippines, visit the National Museum, and you will find there the Spoliarium. It's painted by Juan Luna. It's 13 by 23 feet. It's, to me, it's more beautiful than the Starry Night. I was there many years ago, and I stayed there for two hours staring at that big painting. It's a larger-than-life painting. It's beautiful and mesmerizing. Think about one beautiful thing in your life. Multiply it by infinity. What do you get? The glory of God. There's nothing as beautiful, as infinitely beautiful than the glory of God. And probably King David must have thought about it when he wrote Psalm 27. King David wrote Psalm 27. At that time, there was no temple yet. The throne of God still stays inside the tabernacle. It's a simple tent. No embellishments whatsoever. But Solomon... Solomon was the one who built the temple. But David, before that, was thinking about this beauty of God. What is this beauty of God all about? And he had, you know, wars and, and struggles all around. And every time he think about struggles in life, he would say, I need some peace of mind. And he would think about the tabernacle. He would think about the beauty of God. And so he wrote Psalm 27, verses 1 to 4. Listen. David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, I will be confident. Why? He said in verse 4, One thing I have asked of Yahweh, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He was talking about the tabernacle. To gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. You see, like Uzziah, David is king. He's not allowed to enter the temple. He cannot go to the temple. 
to the tabernacle, brother. He has not peeked inside. He doesn't know what's inside the tabernacle. And yet he longs to see the beauty of God inside the tabernacle. And I'm wondering, do, do we even get excited to go to church on Sunday because we know that we will meet God and worship God in His throne? Do you feel like God is among us here? The reason why sometimes we don't, the reason why sometimes it's not in our spirit because we are not in the spirit. We are not concentrated on who are we going to meet during Sundays. Here's the thing. Here in the Western world, we're conditioned to consume, to get what we pay for. And if we're not satisfied, we can return it. And even that, we bring that to church, that mentality. So, my issue is that what do I get from going to church? Will I get a good sermon? Will I get good music? Will there be lights? Will there be coffee? Will there be... People are hopping churches because they're looking after what they can consume, not what they can give to God. The worth ship. See, when we come here, when we sing, we raise our hands. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's for God. You're singing for God. We're not singing for each other. See, when we sing happy birthday, we're not singing for ourselves. We're singing to the one who was celebrating the birthday. Kuya Edwin is celebrating his birthday today. So when we sing to God, we're singing to God. Not, not so that I can feel good. It's not for you. If we get into the Spirit, we will see the glory of God. Gazing upon the beauty of God. I want to bring you back to the Revelation 4. And this is very interesting. The 24 elders were wearing white garments, wearing crowns, sitting on a throne. Yes? If you go back to the second chapter, the third chapter of Revelation, you will see that the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus said, to the one who conquers, you will be clothed in white garments. Interesting. To the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. To the church in Laodicea 3.21, he said that the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne. You see that? The elders, the 24 elders, doesn't matter what their names are. What matters is that what they have, a crown, white garments, and a throne. See, they represent us as a church. Because when we go to heaven with God in the presence of God, we'll be like that. Crowns, white garments, and thrones. Of course, it's symbolic. But we will have the same privilege. But you see, I'm not concerned about crowns and, and thrones and white garments at this very point. My concern is right now is that to be in the presence of God, to gaze upon the beauty of God and to see His glory is nothing compared to any crown, to any throne, to any white garment. Our goal is to worship the one who created us, who was and is and is to come. I get it now why Mary stayed with Jesus and Martha was preparing busy with food. Because she believed she's doing better in the presence of Jesus himself, at the feet of Jesus. When you go home today and you think life is boring, when you go home today and you feel like you're alone or abandoned, go to your secret place, bend your knees, close your eyes, and think like you're John, you're peeking at the throne of heaven 
and seeing the four creatures and the 24 elders singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you do that, think about David to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I desire to be with you in your temple. Here's a trick. With one eye, look at what's happening around us. With the other eye, look at what's happening at the throne room of God and recite the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we repent of our distractions. Forgive us if we cannot concentrate and give time to worship you. Forgive us, Father, if we forget that you are the one we worship, that we come to church because of you. Father, will you allow us to remodel our lives around you and your kingdom and your will? Allow us like the 24 elders sitting around you, throwing their, thro their crowns at you in worship and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Allow us to see the beauty so that we will not be distracted by what's happening around us, but we will focus our eyes on you. Father, I pray that as we do this, will you also bless our lives and make our lives as conduit of your blessings to other people. In Jesus' name we pray.